again. This is Charlie Belfontaine, and you're listening to the Home Buyers Hour on WCPT AM 820, where the facts matter. And I have one sick puppy that's remotely with us. His name is Joey Matthews, so we're not going to be picking on him too much. But, Joey, if you don't mind, give us a quick update. How do people get hold of you when you're healthy and you get a lot of questions? And thank you for really taking one for the team and being here. Hey, no worries. So, Joey Matthews, <laughs> NMLS, 1330694, the VA Load Nerd. Uh, you can call me 630-235-2405 or text anytime or find me across all the social medias at the VA Load Nerd on everything. I love it. And I love you, Joey, so much. But seriously, man, it sounds like I'm listening to a Sopranos episode <laughs> and I'm afraid somebody's going to get hurt. In I did studio- work at Cicero for 10 years. So <laughs> Amen go. to that. In the studio with us, we have Patrick Loftus. Patrick, can you give us a quick introduction on how people get hold of you? My name is Patrick Loftus, as uh, Charlie said. You can get a hold of me at 773 632 8330. I'm a real estate lawyer with Loftus Law. Outstanding. And this show is about real estate. And our guests, we try to bring in what I consider you know, a high-end real estate agent, somebody that really values what they do and they're true buyer advocates. This year, our real, or this week, our real estate agent has been in the business for over seven years. Uh, she works with Berkshire Hathaway home services and the unique thing about this agent is she's actually an author of two books one historic illinois and two chicago's historic hyde park uh, i'd like to welcome susan o'connor davis to our show susan if you don't mind give us a little bit more about you and we're going to talk a lot about those books great uh good morning everybody uh charlie you've given a good overview i've been with berkshire hathaway for about seven years and i got into the business um, after writing uh, a book that took me about seven years uh, about uh, two historic neighborhoods on the city's south side. And um, I had all these houses dancing in my head after the book was completed and thought this might be a good offshoot to get into it. And it's, uh, it's been a, a wonderful journey thus far. You know, when it comes to the, um, the architecture, I think is the right word, of the city of Chicago, and, and it's vast, it's all over different avenues, you know, and I always like to know the why. Why did what motivates somebody to do this? What made you want to go and do so much research? And there is a lot of research in his book, and put all this in writing. What made you do that? Um, the idea came to me when we constructed our house in Kenwood. Uh, we bought the last um, vacant lot that was owned by the University of Chicago, in I think it was 1998, and. Um, decided to build a house. We hired John Vinci, a Vinci Hamp architect, who's absolutely terrific. And when you undergo this process, they do this, you know, where they, they drill down to see if there had been anything on the site previously. And a neighbor who lived uh, to the south of us at the time um, had said that there had been a house there. Wow. That had been torn down in error. That professor came home one afternoon and there was a crane taking down no way. Well, that's what I thought too. I'm like, that's crazy. Um, however, when I started just looking into that piece of it, um, there was a demolition permit entered for the same address one block over. Oh, and um, that led credence to it. However, when we were uh, when we did these these little excavations to see if there really was in fact anything there um, previously, nothing turned up. We didn't find, you know an old oil tank or anything like that. Um, fast forward, we moved into this uh, into this wonderful home, and every spring as the soil loosens, um, pieces of an older house would come to the surface. And it happens to this day, a, a shard of, of a plate or um, bathroom tiles have been coming up lately. So it struck me that we clearly weren't the first people to make our home in this particular place. And I went off with that concept. No, I love it. And, you know, it, it's it's amazing. I mean, if you're watching us on YouTube, and we do record these and broadcast live on on YouTube every Wednesday morning at 10 o'clock, um, you're, you're going to see Patrick with the big grin on his face and, and me as well. And and now you're going to end up seeing Susan with that same smile on her face. It's it's totally cool stuff. I, I'm i a nerd. I, I'm a sorry to admit it. When it comes to historic homes, 
I'm a nerd. I live in something that was built around 1900 at the turn of the century, and we did a gut and everything else, but we kept a foundation. We kept some of the first floor framing and some of the second floor framing, um, floor framing, and then we expanded from there. And But I never even thought, and, and it's funny too, when we talk about historic homes, we're talking about something that's 100, 150 years old, maybe 200 years old. But yet, you know, I've been to Greece and they got stuff there that's 2,500, 3,000 years old. And you start wondering what really is historic when it comes to it. So it's pretty cool. Yeah, they, they say uh, in Europe, a hundred years is nothing, whereas here, a hundred years is a long time. Whereas yeah. here, a hundred miles is nothing, but there, a hundred miles is a long distance. Mm -hmm. I, I actually live, the place I live in was built in 05, 2005. <laughs> okay, so less a little terrible, less is terrible. Hard, but give it time; it'll get there. All right. That that sounded funnier in my head than it turned out to be. I think it was very funny. So, <laughs> tell me more about choose one of those books again. So, I let's go with the the Chicago's Historic Hyde Park. I like that book because it's ginormous, right? <laughs> and it's got pictures Seven in years. it. Seven years of the making to get that. One of those projects had to stand out for you, though, doing the research on, on one or two of those. Pick one for me, please. Picking one is very hard. <laughs> I know. Uh, it's, very, it's very, very hard. Who's um, your favorite child? <laughs> I only have one. That's an easier question. Uh, hey, Jordan. Uh, I, I, and I want to answer that, too. I have five children, you know, and yes, whichever one of you is listening right now, you, <laughs> you are, are my, my favorite. favorite. I want you to know that. Sorry to interrupt. Uh, uh, no, I. It, there's such a spectrum of what's available in, in Hyde Park in Kenwood. And um, just a little bit of background. It started out really as a suburb of the city of Chicago. Uh, and it was annexed in 1889. And the Columbian Exposition and the, the founding of the University of Chicago really exploded the population that was there. But if you have your eyes open and you, you walk through the neighborhood today, you can find one of my favorites is this very charming Carpenter Gothic one-room house that's tucked in the back behind a hotel and has become, I understand, the dining room for a house that was built in 1872. And you, there were these guides at the time by um, landscape architects and, um, uh, and home builders that, that were, that this style became very important in, in American taste. And that's tucked away there. And that lies in contrast to, I mean, the house that I was speaking about um, that John Vinci designed, uh, which is, you know, um, a very different scale, yet also very simple. And there's this, this is just marvelous layering. So when you say that there's one, um, that's a hard question for me. Well, let me ask a different question. Huh? Um, so I, when we were speaking earlier, you talked about how um, there are certain requirements in terms of what you can really put there. Uh, they want it to fit the neighborhood. Um, maybe I, I'm curious, how difficult was that to um, to make that happen in 1998 around that area as, uh, as opposed to contemporaneous with when the rest of the neighborhood was built? Um, well, throughout the neighborhood, um, you know, if, I, if we go from 1858 to, to today, there's been construction throughout. Um, Hyde Park is not landmarked. Kenward is landmarked. That happened What does that mean? Go into the detail just in case anybody's listening doesn't know. Um, the south side of Chicago underwent great transformation uh, middle of last century. And a lot of these historic structures were torn down. The Hyde Park community actually had to destroy about 20% of itself in order to be able to move forward. Um, so in 1978, the, the, the Kenwood neighborhood experienced um, an event that was kind of a catalyst for this, and that was a developer was going to buy the Julius Rosenwald mansion, and which is this huge house on an immense parcel of land, well over an acre, um, and put in uh, townhouses in the backyard. And people were like, that's that's just destroying the character of what we have here. Yeah. And so today... I, I, I would tend to agree with them. <laughs> yes. Um, today, you can walk by that and see it as it was when Julius Rosenwald lived there in 1903. So uh, what it means is that you can't tear down anything that's currently um, 
within the Hyde Park, within, the, excuse me, the Kenwood Landmark District, nor can you do anything on the facade to change the appearance of what that house is. That covers things that might have been there in 1871. It also covers things that were built, uh, for example, Bertrand Goldberg did a couple houses in the 30s. So even though they're outside of this historic period of time, um, that layering that I keep mentioning is, you know, is, is very important. If you want to do anything on the interior of the house, you're, you're free to do that. Um, and in terms of the process, it... Um, I'm sure it's pleasurable. It was, that's one word for it, yes. <laughs> <laughs> There's one word. There's a number of layers you have to go through. Um, uh, for our, in our personal sense, we wanted a Chicago architect. Um, John is uh, an architectural historian. Um, you might be familiar with him with his work with Richard Nickel. They photographed the stock exchange coming down and tried to salvage a lot of that. But he's, uh, he's a modernist at heart. And so to try to build what we wanted to build, his vision of it in this historic uh, district, uh, met with, you might say, some controversy uh, at times. Uh, we had to go through a local neighborhood group and get their approval, and then we had to go to landmarks. Uh, and that was a little bit trickier. So basically, everybody has to approve what you're talking, what you want to build, right? Correct. Sounds like a homeowners association on steroids. It sounds like to me. It um, well, you know, you want. It's a small community, and so you want to be respectful of, of what's there. So John Absolutely. really tried to use materials that were reflective of the quality of what was built uh, a century ago, nice. um, but do it in a way that was fresh and modern. Now, do you have? Is that like a legal process as well? I guess I'm aiming to say both of you, Patrick and and Susan. Is there when you go through this whole historic thing? I mean, is this something you need an attorney for, or is this something? Oh, that... oh yes. <laughs> oh yes. Yeah. No. You 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 definitely do, and you need a good strong architect because one of the um, one of the comments from landmarks about what we wanted to build was that there was no third floor on it, which throughout the neighborhood they're referred to it as this tripartite design. Um, and a lot of those third floors are ballrooms. So I don't know about you, but we didn't need one of those. <laughs> no. Why not? No, no, no we did yeah. not need that. We did not need that. Um, so we managed to navigate the process by showing, John showed, the massing and the scale of the house was um, appropriate for the neighborhood. Nice. Nice, nice, nice. Patrick, did you ever get involved in any of those things? No. <laughs> that was quick and easy coming in You know in what? There. They don't come up very often, no. honestly, because there's, you know, one of the requirements of a landmark district is you can't tear anything down. Yeah. So there aren't that many opportunities to build something of, of new construction, although it, yeah. does, it does happen. Yeah, I would think um, if I were in your shoes, I would want to um, retain the services of someone who has probably more relationships within the city of Chicago than I have. So... You know, I, I have many, many strengths, um, but one, one of my, one of my strengths, unfortunately, does not include close relationships with um, government officials. So, no, and those houses are not small either. Those, those things are. I mean, what's the average square footage of those? I'm going to guess six, seven. Uh, yes, probably somewhere in there, about seven thousand square feet. And they can get up to ten and beyond, but. And do you remember, like, when we, when you met with our first, I think it's the first transaction we ever worked together on, um, and, and you corrected me. I thought I was next door to, to Michelle and Barack Obama's house, but I was two doors down. Correct. And, and, I mean, it was intimidating. You know, we're talking porticles. We're talking, you know, where they parked the, the horses and the carriages, you know, and I had to send, I think, five inspectors on something like that, and we were still there for a long time and had to go back again. Yeah, that was the Goodman Mansion uh, of the Goodman Theater. And they did have a ballroom on the third floor. That was also a theater. And that's where um, um, a lot of plays were put on um, in that house. It eventually became a school. I think it was called the Normal School of Education in the 1930s. Because what happened to these places is, you know, I think that one is 15, 17,000 square feet. You know, it's a lot of house. It's a lot, it's a of, lot house. of house. <laughs> it's a lot of house. And it was particularly a lot of house in the 1930s because, you know, an, an architect strives for a 40-year service life for most of the building, meaning you don't need a new roof or anything for that period of time. So what happened to a lot of these old places was 
We had the First World War. We had the Depression. Right at the time that these houses were getting to be 30 and 40 years old and needing investment. There was also flight outside of the neighborhood. And so a lot of these old places got divided into rooming houses, uh, in which case, you know, there could be 10 families living in one place without any upgrading to the electric or the plumbing and... Um, or egress safety, I'm sure. Uh, none of that. Um, and then <laughs> others were bought for institutional purposes, and that that was one. But it's a magnificent, magnificent house. And it's unique, too, with the changes in construction. And, and this is not me ripping on the older homes, but there's an old saying when we're talking about building construction is, oh, they don't build them like they used to. Mm -hmm. And I always follow up with, thank God, you know, <laughs> that we don't build them like we used to. Because, you know, when when you're looking at it, and my house too is over 120 years old now. And, you know, we have two by eight floor joists. And Patrick was mentioning earlier to me that, well, wait a minute, we don't build with two by eight. No, not today. You know, everything is gonna be minimum two by tens, making sure everything's up to date. But we kept those two by eight floor joists because we weren't changing anything, so we were allowed to keep it. But it's it's the span and everything else that comes in there. Then you're talking about a lot of tin clad copper wire. Heck, that house probably didn't have electricity when it was first built. And in fact, I'm sure it didn't. And that was probably all lit with gas lamps. Correct. You know, and a lot of people don't know this, but because of our construction with gas on the inside of the house and using gas lights in the house, that's how that whole conduit stuff started coming out with our electricity. So when they started electrifying these houses, they actually used the old gas pipes and they ran the wires and fished them through the wall and they found out that this was a very safe method to go ahead and start doing electricity and they started adding on to that. So just a little bit of, you know, Charlie adding to some of that trivia there for you, hmm. you know, but uh, it's amazing. My understanding also is that uh, the conduit persists, perhaps uh, in no small part because um, unions like to have all of that extra work to pipe a house rather than just staple a bunch of BX uh, wire in, which is, you know, probably just as safe as far as I know. And I uh, could talk about that all day <laughs> long. So you'll hear, you'll hear three reasonings. Okay, so backing up a little bit, when, I, when we're dealing with conduit or pipe, um, in, in the United States, there's only three metropolitan areas that do that. It's New York, Chicago, and Los Angeles, all right? And a lot of people will say it's because of the unions. Some people will say it's because of the Great Chicago Fire. And other people will tell me it's because of rats that are present there chewing through the wire and they want extra protection. However, as far as I'm concerned, we here in Chicago have some of the safest electrical work that's being done. Now, we still have work that gets done by amateurs and because of which it's, it's done wrong. But one unique recent code change that doesn't happen in Chicago, it's different than the suburbs, are the addition of arc fault circuit interrupters. All right, so a little bit of trivia. City of Chicago does not require arc fault circuit interrupters. All right, and, and they don't outlaw them, you can still put them in there. But the rationale is because everything's in pipe, we really don't have any sort of arc issues that come in there. We have some of the safest electric. So the contractors were able to keep that out of the building for now. So unique, unique construction information that I get to share. So, so, so tell me more about that particular house because I, I didn't, I don't think I realized that uh, the Goodman house was the one we were looking at. I knew it was big. I knew it was ornate. Um, I believe that the person who was selling the house was a civil rights attorney and very well educated, very well respected, and and I, I had the pleasure of having a short conversation with them. Um, but tell me more about the house. You know, I love the ballroom up on the top floor. That's so cool. Uh, yes, the sellers of that were Jim and Pauline Montgomery. And uh, they, I don't know the year, I don't recall the year that they purchased the house, but they underwent um, uh, a lot of structural work within the house. Uh, that's not to say that the people that bought it aren't doing a fair amount of work in there also. Um, but it, um, you know, it was a period of time where your home was representative of your wealth and status. Um, uh, of the owners. And so uh, there's a lot of beautiful wood paneling throughout the house. Oh my God, um, yes. Uh, that I remember. Yes, it's a um, grand staircase going up. The, the ballroom is really the, the gem of the house. And then the grounds are um, 
extensive. Uh, I think the it, what you find in Kenwood are lots that are 300 feet deep. So that's twice what a normal city lot is. And I believe that that one's at least 100, maybe 125 feet wide. I would wow. say the, the 125, if not bigger. Yeah, it was very wide. It was almost like a double lot. Oh, well, I you think know. it's like six lots. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> good point. If, if a lot is 25, yeah. Right. It was done by an architecture firm, uh, Treat and Foltz, uh, at the time. And they were society architects. You know, you, you went to them and they developed... That it's kind of an Italianate style. It's, it's, um, it was built in the period where um, uh, more was more, as opposed to meats. <laughs> less is more. There is stuff everywhere, and um, big festooned draperies. Uh, it's kind of fun because you can go online and you can find pictures of what it did look like uh, when it was first furnished, and every single surface is covered with, with something. No, that much I like. Susan, if somebody wanted to buy your books, give us the name and uh, both books, and how do people get hold of these if, if they want to purchase these? Oh, um, well, the first book the, um, is Chicago's Historic High Park. Uh, that's available in most um, bookstores in the architecture section, or you can get it off of um, Jeff Bezos' site. And, <laughs> yeah, they, Although they, I'd they're love not, you to go to a bookstore. We I was going to say, they sell books. They're not, they're not paying for the plug, so, but no. y- y'all know, you know who we're talking about. Uh, <laughs> and you were featured also, if I remember right, WBBM TV, uh, Channel 11? Uh, it was, yeah, WTTW Chicago Tonight did a... Window to the World, that's Channel 11, I'm uh, sorry. Yes, no, Channel 11, and it, um, it was fun to do because uh, the book came out in 2013, and um, it, it opens with... Um, Barack and Michelle, who live in Kenwood, uh, leaving on January, whatever the date was, uh, to go to Washington. And then three weeks later, the first family came home. And it just struck me that you're the most powerful plan on, man on the planet. Yeah. What are you doing back here? <laughs> and that concept of, of home and what, and what home means. A little bit uh, of trivia, too. Special. I'll add on to that. Uh, Michelle Obama is talking about seven phases to the world. Michelle Obama's godmother lived directly behind me when I was living in Bolingbrook and they would come and visit her once a year and my so and we didn't have a fence between our yards and seeing that house surrounded with secret service and police and everything else I'm just standing in my, in my backyard and of course I got a can of beer on, on my lawn <laughs> furniture and I'm like this is cool you know with all these dogs and everything else coming around Patrick um Tell us how do people get a hold of you if they have any questions, please. You can send me an email. My email address is patrick at loftus, L-O-F-T-U-S, dot law. Not law. And Joe, are you up for, for giving <laughs> us some contact info for you? I, I know I'm kind of leaving you out of the conversation a bit. No, it's okay. Yeah. Uh, Joey Matthews, the VA loan nerd, uh, 630-235-24. Zero five call or text anytime, including right now. Don't care. Sounds good. I want to throw a plug out. Um, we're we're getting all those videos. Joey and I put together for the minimum property requirements. There's nobody else I know who is is knowledgeable when it comes to uh, loans for veterans. All right, and especially the whole VA loan process, where other people have stumbled and failed. Joey ends up making all these things work, and I, I love the fact when I hear that he's never had. A he never had a loan not close because of a paperwork issue that came in there. So that much I got to give him a super attaboy and thank you for making those videos and we're going to make those public on us. My name is Charlie Belfontaine and I own Chicagoland Home Inspectors. Our website is www.thehomeinspectors. That's plural and O-R-S. And it's a dot com as well. Our phone number is 312-544- nine one eight zero and joey patrick myself and i'm pretty sure i'm going to speak for susan and she could she could always go ahead and and change it up on me everybody that's here always wants to help other people and that's one of the the things that we look for when we bring somebody on the show is to be a true advocate it and and granted it is our our business and what we do for a living but please never be afraid to reach out to any one of these people if you have any problems any issues anything else like that it's they're going to be open they're going to help and that's just what everybody has and i have great respect for all these people so going i'm sorry do you want to add patrick no 
No. Okay. So then we're going right back to Susan again. And that, and I, as much as I love that house, and I was so much hoping to see um, Barack Obama, Michelle Obama, you know, when we were going down there to do the the inspections, I, I think I we probably might not have been able to get there if they were actually home. Is that? Uh, the street has those, what do they call them, Jersey blocks? That, yeah, those yeah. barricades. Yeah. We had to do a serpentine to get into the, the block in the headquarters. But right. I guess there's more guards there when they're actually on premise. Yeah, it was it was fascinating to be, you know, to be living there when you had the president of the United States coming and going. And um, uh, initially, the uh, the entourage would, would come down the block at not very high speeds. Uh, in fact, uh, one year was my daughter's birthday. I forgot how old she was. And the kids were in the back and he was in town for a, for a fundraiser. And I'm like, come on, we're going to go out in the street and wave our flags. And of course, they all look at me like, oh, great. Uh, but they went out there and sure enough, we're standing there in the cold and um, the cars start speeding by and all of a sudden they slow down. And he pops out, says happy birthday to the kids and gets back in his car and like your face, yes. <laughs> the government just stopped in front of our house, uh, and off he went. And you know what a great moment in memory for those kids. Uh, toward the end of his presidency, it was a, it was, it was completely different. I mean, the entourage was twice as long. They came down our street at, I don't know, sixty or seventy miles an hour, and uh, so things changed. Things Ooh. do change. I did have that option to shake Bill Clinton's hand one time. Um, when I was a fireman in Northbrook, I, I can't, I could picture the junior high school, but I can't think of the name of the junior high school. It's on Landwehr and Techni, I know that much. But they were rated the number one junior high school in the nation. And, and of course, Hillary's family grew up in Park Ridge, right. and that's where they were from. So I figured they, they put it together for a way to visit her family and then come over and give this award for it be a, a presidential school. And and being a paramedic at the time and on the ambulance, we actually had to be part of that motorcade, um, which is cool. You know, I don't know what else to say. And then he came out and we got to shake his hand. Now, my, my story is a little bit different. Um, we live on the route of the Thanksgiving Day Parade. And um, I don't know if you know this, but Santa Claus is in that parade. So, uh, yeah, it's... It, not president of the United States, didn't actually get to meet him, um, but Santa Claus did uh, go in, and, and ride by on a float uh, in front of uh, where we live. Now, I will say one thing, though. My wife, pretty annoyed that Santa gets to ride on a float. Mrs. Claus has to walk. That is rude. She thinks that is sexist, and, well, <laughs> you know, I, how am I going to argue with that? So anyways, you know, yeah, not a president, but yeah, he's, he's an important dude. There you Did go. he recognize you, though? Did he ask you for your autograph? I mean, you are a star. Uh, he looked over and he goes, yeah, that guy's getting cold. <laughs> <laughs> that much I love it. But, but, you know, Patrick, there's something that I, I'm thinking about with these historic homes and buying these historic homes. There, there's got to be some legal problems and issues that come into play with something that's over 100 years old. What's your experience on that? Well, and Susan, help them out with these things if you can. Yeah, yeah. To be honest, I reckon Susan knows more about this than I do. Um, you know, every house, you need to do your due diligence, and especially in an older home. I mean, Charlie, you know, with the inspection, you walk downstairs in the basement, you got a masonry foundation. It's something that needs to be taken into account if you're going to purchase that home. Otherwise, you're going to be in for probably some some rude awakenings as as time goes on. Um, now, are you talking about uh, maintenance issues, or are you talking about permit or legal issues? What well, you, you know, I, I'm, I'm sort of attacking this from a couple different angles. So okay. that's that's really uh, one aspect of it is that the expectation in an older home is that you're going to have some of these older building materials, building techniques, and to make sure that the client understands, you make them familiar so that they can bring that into the mix in terms of their evaluation. Now, when I get a contract in, and it's for um, certainly a single family detached home in the city of Chicago, one of the first things I do is I go on the building department website and I'll search the address and I'll see if there's any open building violations, what permits have been pulled, et cetera. That's good advice. If there's open building violations, 
we need to do some more investigation as to whether those have been resolved and just not updated on the city's website or if those are still open because again that is something that needs to be taken into consideration most of the time a seller is not going to offer that information uh you know uh, just uh, extemporaneously uh it's it's either something you have to draw out of them or learn on your own um, and that's just the reality of it i'm not trying to say that sellers are shady it's just how it is. Uh, and we got, don't know when they bought the house and when the work was done. That's true. That's you know? true. As, as as often as not, if they bought the house five years ago, maybe you have a 10-year-old building violation. Their, their lawyer, when they bought it, didn't catch it. Well, I caught it. Um, so that's one thing. And the older the home, of course, the more the more time that has passed that you could potentially have one of these issues. I mean, take, for example... Um, Maybe you've got a, a bungalow in Portage Park. This was the example I used earlier. And they built out the attic into a second floor. If they didn't get permits, that could be an issue going forward. If you've got a home that has all of the, the hallmarks of a recent renovation and you go and you look on the uh, website and you find that there are there's no um, record of permits being pulled, you've got to let the client know because it's not a guarantee that this will happen, but it can happen, and I've seen it happen where the city comes back after the fact, and you're the owner now. You didn't do anything wrong, but you now own this home that has a bunch of unpermitted work done. The city doesn't care that it's not your fault. The city says there's not a permit. You need to pull the permit or put it back the way it was before. Now, you're not going to do that second one because no. uh, that doesn't make sense. You're going to have to do the first one. It's going to most likely most likely require architectural plans which are not cheap Correct. it's going to require all sorts of other stuff that is going to it's going to be very costly and so, especially if you got to go through zoning changes or anything else like that too oh my gosh yeah if you've got to go get a if you've got to go get a variance for example you don't have the proper setbacks uh on on the front back side whatever it is it, you, you can you can you start going down a very expensive rabbit hole um all things that if you can discover before the buyer hands their money over, very, very, it can be very, very important. They may still decide to go forward with it for whatever reason, but no choice. They've been able to weigh that risk rather than have something come down on their head like a ton of bricks six weeks after they bought the place. Yeah, that could be expensive. Susan, do you do more listings or sales? Uh, in the last two years, I've done more sales. More sales. Um, Yes. Is that a process that you go through when you're taking somebody to show them that house? Do you want to look up past permits or something? Is that something? Oh, absolutely. Really? Absolutely. This is exciting to hear. Tell me more. (laughs) Well, you know, when you're dealing with an older house, I mean, there's a couple. One thing that struck me in what you were saying, Patrick, and that is the importance of having a team that works together to look at these houses. Because if you're looking at 150 years of history, a whole lot has gone on to that structure in that period of time. And you want to go in with your eyes wide open. Um, That had made um, selling sometimes more challenging in Hyde Park and Kenwood because of the age of our housing stock. However, what happened during COVID was that people recognized the importance of having these quirky spaces within a house where you may have that ballroom upstairs that now is the Lego room or something else becomes an office. And <laughs> and the demand in those two markets was extraordinary over the past, past couple of years be, because of that. So buying a historic property does come with some challenges. And it's important that you, you have an agent that understands whatever the particular area is, whatever the um, building processes were during a particular period of time, that Charlie's business um, is of extraordinary importance. Um, I was joking with him earlier. He's yeah, cost me yeah. a couple deals. Oh, yeah, let's but get that it, all out there, yeah, people. No, but it was, it was absolutely the right thing to do because if you go into a house and there is a brick foundation and we can look at it and it's crumbling. Um, they need to know it needs to be parched. They need to know that yeah. ahead of time and they need to know what the costs associated with that are because... And um, the general maintenance that goes with it. Right. That's not just a repair. Right. You know, a lot of that stuff ends up becoming ongoing and especially when you're dealing with painting, wood exteriors. A lot of that stuff needs general maintenance. I'm sorry to jump on you. No, no, no. I mean, some of it's obvious when you walk in the basement and, and you can see it. Some of it in that particular house, we scoped the sewer and guess what? The sewer didn't go anywhere. So 
you know, that's another $13,000 that, you know, that people had to spend on that particular property. So I can't emphasize enough how important it is to have a team that's that's really knowledgeable about the type of property that you're buying. Yeah, and, and let me just, I, I want to highlight something you just said, um, because I, I think that it actually demonstrates the level of knowledge you have, and that is you walk in, you can see it, and it's obvious to you. Mm. And that is what's important when you are building the team that you just described is that if I'm going to buy a house that has, well, I don't want to say that. I, right. Let me just. Uh, As a quality. <laughs> right. uh, who is better qualified than you to represent someone who is buying or selling a house that has these unique characteristics? Thank you for that. No, but it also goes back to the word assumptions, you know. And I'm not going to use the ASS part, but that's the you, me afterwards when you assume things. And, you know, when whenever we, like I do a lot of training of home inspectors as well, and we bring in outside experts when we do these training stuff. And I like to ask what m many people think is a dumb question. And the whole reason why I ask that dumb question is because somebody doesn't know the answer. And it, to me, it's a good thing to talk out, you know, or talk out or walk it out or talk it out and, and come out there just to make sure that everybody's on the same wavelength when it comes to it. And the other thing, too, I like about what you're saying is, is getting a good team together. And even if it's somebody else that you haven't worked with before, just being able to have that openness and that dialogue. And Patrick, you could probably expound on this a little bit more. But there's a whole lot of communication that should be happening yes. between all the advisors and the client. I don't think we should be talking about them behind their back, but we need to talk to each other. I know I get left out of the loop many of the times, and but but there's there's a lot of where are we, you know, and get everyone on the, the same path. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, it, it's it's vitally important, especially with these old properties, but with any property that you're buying. I mean, you. Um, you know, we act as advocates for the clients, um, each of us in our roles. And as much as you can communicate ahead of time, the better off we all are. There's always a surprise. There's always something that we can't see that we, that we didn't uncover. But you, you really um, owe it to whoever you're working with to, to try to uncover as much as you can. Yeah, the, the metaphor I suppose I would use is there's, there's overlap in everything that we do. Mm -hmm. um, if we silo ourselves off from each other instead of maintaining a good line of communication, we're gonna end up stamping on each other's toes. It's, and it's going to show on the other side and it's going to make things go uh, less smooth. It's gonna be clunky. I'm going to be saying one thing and the, uh, the agent's gonna be communicating something different and it's going to result in a worse result for the client. And the more I do this, the more I have come to understand that we need to all be pulling in the same direction, not just be saying, well, I'm the lawyer and I, you know, so I, blah, blah, blah. I'm the agent, blah, blah, No, it's not like that. It's, you know, maintaining those open lines of communication and then deciding on a strategy. Okay, so you're going to handle this aspect of the negotiation. I'm going to be doing this on my side of things. You can have, you know, communicate with the other agent in a certain way. The lawyers, you know, we just you know, square off with our swords, <laughs> swords, swords, <laughs> so, swords and shields. Uh, whereas you guys are, are you know, more uh, able to. I know you hate this uh, word, but you know, finesse things. Um, you know what? But let's let's pull out some examples. I mean, you give me a hundred, hundred fifty year old house. I guarantee you, those floors are not going to be leveled. You know, they're gonna, right. one section has settled one way or another. Even when we remodeled our home, we kept that unevenness in the floors. We got humps in the floors, and I, I like it. You know, I purposely put our wood floors in so they would squeak. I did that on purpose because I'm an idiot, maybe, or I'm just a, an old historic nerd. But, or you can you know when your children are leaving the house. <laughs> oh yeah, sneaky, sneaky. They're all they're all adults now, but you are right. Those teenagers, would, but would actually be, they're wonderful. They never did that. Would it be rude to ask uh, Joey a question, or is he not up for? He'll be quiet if otherwise. Hit him up, Joey. Any anything on your end when it comes to these uh, historic homes? Uh, I we may have lost Joey then. All right. 
Cool. I'm checking okay. with them. Yeah, we did lose All Joey. Right. He must not be feeling too he good where it comes in there. Feel better. Joey, go you take know? some NyQuil, and we'll catch up with you next week. But I, but I do know with the historic homes with Joey, it depends if they're going, you know, FHA or VA. You know, whenever and, – and these size houses in those neighborhoods, Susan, those are not cheap homes by right. any means. And I, I know that the – I shouldn't say I know, but I'm guessing that it's somewhere around three-quarters of a million dollars that you could get an FHA or a VA. And VA could be more than that if they're a military vet. That I know. Um, but there's things that they're looking for with the minimum property requirements that do come into play. If – you know, what percentage of those homes do you think are – wood cladded exteriors oh there's quite a few is there really i was expecting that number to be relatively low i thought it'd be all masonry or mostly masonry no there's a combination because it depends again you know this is a broad spectrum of time so in 1870 it's you know it's frame construction and there are streets that are uh two blocks of kimbark are, are just all frame construction so there's really a melange of of product yeah i reckon that it, one of the attractive things about building a home in Hyde Park before it was annexed would be that you could build a frame home at that point after the fire. Uh, absolutely. But after the fire, a lot of the... Well, it, you're correct. You're correct. Yeah, there, there was consider, considered a cheaper form of construction back then. You know, after the fire, people were very afraid of it. Oh, you can't build out of wood. you got to build out of, out of uh, masonry or brick or concrete or, or block. Yeah, a lot of people couldn't rebuild their homes if yeah. they were within city limits because they just couldn't afford to build a masonry home. Right. But they, I don't know if that was even in the city, you know, back then. You no, know. in 1871, it was a suburb. It was a yeah. suburb. Exactly. And, that, and that was my point, is that yeah. it, because it was not within city limits at that point, you could right. build a, a wood frame home. Right. And I, I did a little research on all that, <laughs> you know, and I was like, why did... You know, why did, whatever, Lincoln Park become Lincoln Park? Why do, why do they name these neighborhoods what they were? And most of them were suburbs, you know, is Absolutely. what it was. They weren't Absolutely. part of the, the city, you know, where it came into it, and then they just stayed in with the neighborhood. But where I was going with, with this question beforehand and where Patrick was going, the minimum property requirements do require that everything stay well painted, that there's no bare wood, there's no peeling paint, there's no broken windows. Um, but there's a lot of stuff with historic homes that, you know, it's it's almost I want to put together a class for people to understand what should you expect. You know, like these homes are going to be drafty. All right. Unless you go in there and you put new windows in. Um, I remember before we did our house, you could fly a kite in my living room. I swear <laughs> as God is my witness, you know. But, I mean, what sort of things do you see that, that people need to expect that, in an older home that they don't necessarily expect in uh, in a new construction home. Charlie, there's such a such a spectrum. Of, there is of, of, of what of how I could answer that. I I mean, you know, we're dealing with heating systems that started out being fireplaces to you know being upgraded to radiators, and um, it, there's just such a variety. Depending upon when the house was built, that. That's kind of hard to, to to answer. I think you know. Okay. When you buy an older house, you have to be flexible. You know. Um, I think you can expect very little insulation in the walls. Correct. And the ceiling. I think if you any, can expect, if any, good point. I think you can expect that there's going to be minimal outlets on the walls unless they've been added on correct. afterwards. I think you can expect lead paint and lead water lines to be in those properties, and that doesn't mean that they're dangerous. There's ways to get around all that stuff. So, and uneven floors, you know, brick foundations, parging that comes in there, massive fireplaces is a big one, you know. So we're big on chimney scans when it comes to that. Get a camera up in there and view the inside of it. There's a whole bunch of stuff. Susan, tell me more about the book and how do people get hold of you again? Uh, I told you about the first book. The second book is Historic Illinois. Um, people can get a hold of me at my website, um, soconnor at uh, bhhschicago.com, uh, or my cell, uh, my phone, excuse me, is 312-883-9991. 883-834, 9991 All right, I got an 893-8144. Is that a different number? No, you're right. 
I got all scared there for a second. I thought I wrote the. All right, I got I got all scared that I wrote down the wrong number. So three one two eight nine three eight one four four eight one four four. Beautiful, Patrick. How do they get hold of you, please? Call or text seven seven three six three two eight three. If you are watching on YouTube, smash the like button. Oh, yeah, please do. Subscribe. Turn on the alerts. Please help us. We want to monetize this so I don't have to work anymore. <laughs> I love that. And then I don't want to forget Joey Matthews of the Federal Savings Bank. I'm always very thankful for the amount of knowledge that he adds here. And if you do have any questions about VA mortgages, FHA mortgages, quite frankly, any type of mortgage, um, he's got a pretty big team over there, and this is one of the most anal retentive, number crunching guys I've ever met. And he's going to put your client, and talking to real estate agents right now, he's going to put your client through the works right up in the beginning when he gets that pre approval because he doesn't want those things coming back. You know, and once they get the pre approval, it's pretty much a guaranteed approval is what he works with. So his phone number is 630-235-2405. Joey, I hope you feel better. And again, my name is Charlie. Our company is Chicagoland Home Inspectors. And our phone number is 312-544-9180. Our education site right now, it's mostly geared towards home inspectors, but we do want to open it up to real estate attorneys and quite free, frankly, homeowners as well. And we want to put as much free education as we can up there. So right now that's the Home Inspector, Home Inspection University and uh, Home Inspection University of Illinois. And the website is H-I-U-I-L and that's a dot com as well. So Susan, we were talking about some of the common things that we would end up um, seeing in a house of something that's 100, 150 years old. What, can you think of some of the some of the problems you have when you're going through the um, attorney review period, the inspection contingency period, that five-day window, when you start having, you know, what do clients want to ask for typically when they see things? Uh, well, typically somebody asks, everybody asks for something. Uh, I will say, however, in the last two years, that's been mitigated a bit by COVID and just the demand that's been out there. Um, we were not a community that experienced a lot of um, multiple offers and a lot of cash offers, and that all changed. Um, that's surprising to hear. So you're telling me those two neighborhoods were, you know, I mean, I've seen 20, 30 people bidding on a house, and they're giving their first born children away in order to get that home. That didn't happen down there, huh? It, and not 20 or 30 people, no. I mean, it's a very unique community. Um, it uh, is very big, high-end homes, and they are expensive. It's, although, I'm, I'm, it's a combination of homes. I mean, there are cooperatives that sell for, I sold one for $71,000. So there's a wide variety of what is available there. So yes, there are these big, magnificent uh, structures, but there's a lot of condominiums and cooperatives that, um, are in the more are, are in the more affordable range. Um, now, when we're dealing with co-ops, though, a co-op is still a condo, but no, it's not. It is not. All right, no. help educate me. I mean, here. it's a multifamily structure. All right. Um, however, when you buy uh, when you buy a cooperative, you're buying into a corporation, and you'll right. have an amount of shares within that corporation, and then you'll have a proprietary lease for your unit. So um, it's a different. Um, form of purchase, a different form of ownership. If you're in New York, it's quite common here. You know, you get them on East Lakeshore Drive. Hyde Park has a number of them for, I, I don't, not quite sure what, why that is, but uh, they are, um, there are a number of buildings that are cooperatives. The biggest thing I've learned or seen on those things is that the fee for the property is much, much lower. Correct. But your monthly payments, because taxes and a lot of other stuff are built into that, are going to be higher. Is that a fair statement? That is a very fair statement, yes. Okay. As opposed to the difference with the condos, because you're going to be paying your own tax bill on a condominium on that property that you own, which is still a portion of the entire building's tax things. And Patrick, am I off base on this? or I'm just waiting for you guys to ask the lawyer about this because, you know, just sitting back waiting. So, co-ops. <laughs> <laughs> 
Co-ops, uh, condominiums, believe it or not, are a fairly recent phenomenon. I want to say that they, they didn't really come into you know their own until the 60s. Um, so if you wanted to have like a collective ownership sort of, well, collective, you know, it's sort of uh, similar to, to, to the word co-op. But a, a co-op is effectively a condominium before condominiums actually existed. And and what Susan said is correct. You've got, um, you know, you're essentially you're investing in a in a corporation um, and that investment gives you the right to uh, to dwell in your unit so it is it is different in structure um, you know I don't fault you for thinking it's quite similar to a condominium in many respects it is from just the the overall experience of it you wouldn't necessarily notice that you live in a co-op versus a condominium except when uh, the monthly maintenance payments are due and you're paying $2,500 rather than you know whatever 1100 let's say just throwing numbers out there um, I've handled a few uh, co-op purchases and sales um, and uh, yeah there, there's definitely it's definitely its own niche um, but I would say that if, you, if you're dealing with something that's a co-op as opposed to a condo it's probably because it was um, constructed before condos were a thing okay well we're getting towards the end of it i want to go through the end of our show so i want to go around the horn one more time susan please give us the name of the both of those books and how do people get hold of you uh chicago's historic hyde park is the first book and the second one that just came out is historic illinois which takes us out of this great city that we're talking about and uh it's been a fascinating ride doing this um People can get a hold of me at uh, s.o'connor at bhhschicago.com. Um, or I'll give you my cell since I messed up my office number. 312-560-8186. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Feel free to call or text. Repeat that for me, will you please? 312-560-8186. And Patrick, please. You can email me, patrick at loftus.law. Sounds good. And again, my name is Charlie Belfontaine. We own Chicagoland Home Inspectors. If you got anything that's home inspection related or even any problems with your home, please feel free to reach out to me. Our phone number is 312-544-9180. If you press 2 and I'm available, that will actually come and ring my phone and you'll be able to get hold of me. All right. Um, we do have, you know, and, and one more thing about Joey Matthews and the Federal Savings Bank, another another great asset. Use them, 630-235-2405. And, yeah, anytime you're having any problems, especially with the minimum property requirements of an FHA or VA mortgage, he's going to end up being your go-to guy. Uh, Susan, give me one word of wisdom for... Anybody who's looking at going at an older house, what do you want them to work on? And we are short on time. Patience. <laughs> Patience. I love that. There's nothing I love better than one word answers when it comes to it. Patrick, same thing to you. How do I follow that? I mean, I the know. perfect answer. So, yeah, patience and... I don't have one. I'm a lawyer. I don't do one word answers, man. <laughs> uh, it depends is what my answer always is. Honestly... Educate yourself first. That's the key. Don't walk in thinking you're going to see the things you would expect if it was a brand new constructed home. Embrace it. And really, what you're getting with a historic home is something that is unique. And with that is, you know, comes unique challenges. I be, love that. Be prepared for it. Very well said. So I want to give a few thank yous. One of them goes to Susan for being here. Thank you very much. Thank Your you. wealth of knowledge and and. I greatly appreciate you taking the time out to be on the show with us. Number two is going to be Devin Tingle. He's our producer, and I love to give him an attaboy for coming out here. Number three is Bernie and Mrs. Loftus, our two <laughs> members of our fan club. We give a shout-out. And with that being said, my name is Charlie. You listen to WCPT AMA 20. Enjoy the rest of the morning, and I am out.